welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, welcome along to Gateway. So glad you're here. Uh, we appreciate that you take time out of busy schedules to, um, to be with us. Um, over the last few Sunday evenings, I've been doing a series that's kind of apologetic in nature, really. Um, I've been looking at particular challenges that I think the church faces in our day and our time that we as believers uh, often are faced in terms of people challenging Christianity, and, and many of them will come along one of these, one of these tracks. Um, I talked, first of all, about the challenge of atheism. Uh, I talked about the challenge last week of pluralism. I talked um, the second week, I think, was the challenge uh, of feminism. And um, if you weren't there, please don't assume, by the way, you think you know what that means. Um, listen to the podcast, all right? And last week I was talking about the fact that when you add ISM, the, pref- the suffix to a word, it, it changes it profoundly. It changes the root word. And the word that we've chosen this week um, is scientism. Now, that might not be a word that um, you are particularly familiar with. It's not a made-up word. Um, it is actually a, a, a word that um, changes the word, obviously, science. So when we're talking about science, we're talking about the intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structures and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. You know, you're probably relatively familiar with what science is. Once you add ISM to that word, scientism, it changes it. And the dictionary definition of scientism is an excessive belief in the power of scientific knowledge and techniques. And that's not my definition, that's the dictionary definition, okay? And I'm interested in that. We'll come back to it later. Would you just notice the word, an excessive belief in the power of scientific knowledge and techniques? Um, This is not a sermon about the challenge that science is to Christianity, because science is not and never has been a challenge to Christianity. Now, that might seem strange to some of you, because to read the popular new atheists, you know, the Richard Dawkins, the Sam Harris's, the Daniel Dennett's, the Christopher Hitchens, you would swear that science and Christianity are diametrically opposed to each other and, in a, and are in a bloody conflict that, that, you know, will lead one of them at least to die. Uh, Peter Atkins, the Oxford chemist, says science and religion cannot be reconciled. The late Christopher Hitchens said, all attempts to reconcile faith and science and and reason are consigned to failure and ridicule. So these guys are pitting science and religion in general, Christianity in particular, against one another. Richard Dawkins, at his dramatic best, claims, intelligent people don't believe in God, only idiots believe. So welcome to the idiots club, most of you. They're saying you cannot believe in science and religion. You cannot be intelligent and believe in science. You can be an idiot if you want to and believe in God, but never, never the twain shall meet. And it's quite a claim on Dawkins' part. And I would want to say, since he is so into only believing things on the basis of scientific evidence, where's the evidence for that claim? 
Okay. Ironically, the same year that Richard Dawkins published his book, The God Delusion, three other very prominent scientists published books also that were very favorable or toward theism. Owen Ginrich, a Harvard astronomer, published a book called God's Universe. Renowned physicist Paul Davies wrote The Goldilocks Enigma. And Francis Collins, who was the head of the Genome Project, published the book The Language of God. And it makes Dawkins' language that only idiots believe sound a bit like a candidate for a TUI ad, you know? Yeah, right, whatever. Clearly, statements by scientists are not always scientific statements. What I'd like to do is actually take a few steps back in this whole discussion and introduce you to a thought that perhaps many of you have never heard of, but is actually... Um, uh, a credible thought put forward by a lot of scholars, uh, a claim made by renowned sociologist Rodney Stark that were it not for Christianity, we probably would not have science. Now, let me explain. Stark says this, real science arose only once in Europe. China, Islam, India, and ancient Greece and Rome each had a highly developed alchemy, which is, by the way, the ancient magic practice of trying to turn base metals into gold. And he said, but only in Europe did alchemy develop into chemistry. Many societies developed elaborate systems of astrology, but only in Europe did astrology lead to astronomy. Why? Well, the answer, Stark asserts, and many scholars agree with him, has to do with the image that people have of God. So Christianity depicted God as rational, responsible, dependable, omnipotent, and the universe as his personal creation, thus having rational, lawful, stable structure awaiting human comprehension. So Alfred, Lord, uh, Alfred North Whitehead concurred and said, the image of God in, in other religions is too impersonal or too irrational to have sustained science. As I say, these and other scholars claim that Christianity was actually essential for the rise of science. Christianity's image of God was the crucial reason why science arose in Christian Europe and nowhere else. And the erroneous idea that Christianity and science were always and are always in conflict was clearly lost on most of the early scientists. Men like Galileo, Kepler, Pascal, Boyle, Newton, Faraday, Pasteur, Mendel, Kelvin, all of these men were theists, and most of them Christian theists. Their belief in God, far from being a hindrance to science, was actually the motivation for it. C.S. Lewis put it brilliantly, he said men became scientists because they expected law and nature, and they expected law and nature because they believed in a lawgiver. The idea of science being at odds with the church throughout history is totally without, without, without historical proof. It's just simply not true. Historian uh, of science, Colin Russell comments, the common belief that relations between religion and science over the past centuries have been marked by deep and enduring hostility is not only historically inaccurate, but is actually a caricature so grotesque that what needs to be explained is how it could have possibly achieved any degree of respectability at all. Now, I, I know when you talk like this, people will always raise Galileo's conflict with the medieval church as a prime example of religion's opposition to science. 
However, contrary to popular opinion, Galileo was no atheistic renegade who scoffed at the Bible. He was a firm believer in God and in the Bible and remained so all of his life. In fact, he said, and I quote, the laws of nature are written by the hand of God in the language of mathematics. You know, historically, most of the opposition that Galileo faced came not from the church, but from secular philosophers and academics who were outraged at his criticism of the prevailing Aristotelian cosmology of the time. What Galileo was doing was challenging the status quo within the scientific community of the time, and he paid a heavy price for his dissent. Some things, by the way, never change. It was the secular authorities that appealed to the church to punish him. To their shame, the church of the time agreed. But they were not the initiators of the process. One of the better-known new atheists, Sam Harris, claimed that the church, quote, tortured scholars to the point of madness for merely speculating about the nature of the stars. Evidence for such a statement, by the way, is not forthcoming. You are required to take that by faith tongue-in-cheek. Oxford professor Alistair McGrath states, the idea is hopelessly outmoded historical stereotype that modern scholarship has totally discarded. Galileo's house arrest was unconscionable, but a Christian bishop looked after him in a luxurious private residence where he was able to continue his scientific endeavors. Science is not, and never has been, a challenge to Christianity. Scientism however, is another beast entirely. Scientism is the claim that science is the measure of all things, and it asserts that the only reliable method of obtaining genuine knowledge is science. Bertrand Russell probably summed it up best when he said, whatever knowledge is attainable must be attained by scientific methods. What science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. Sometimes that is um, uh, reworded and put forward in what's called the verification principle, which says a statement that cannot be empirically verifiable is strictly meaningless. Bertrand Russell says if it's not scientifically provable, you can't know it. The verification principle goes a step further and says not only can you not know it, it's a meaningless statement. Now both Russell and the verification principle suffer from the same defect, and the defect is this. The statements they make cannot be scientifically or empirically verified or demonstrated. They aren't scientific statements, they're philosophical ones. Cannot be verified scientifically. They fail at their own hurdle and their own requirement. They are self-defeating, self-refuting. According to the requirements of the verification principle, they are meaningless statements. They are not statements of science, they are second-order philosophical statements about science. And you know, they need to be separated. Another problem with that assertion, of course, that only things that can be empirically proved are true, is how does that relate to other academic disciplines, like art, or literature, or music? I mean, how do you empirically prove that a piece of art is a masterpiece, or simply a smudge of colors? How do you empirically prove that Mozart was, in fact, a genius? or whether a poem is a work of genius or just a load of old babble. You can't empirically prove those things. How does scientism interact with the realm of morality and ethics? 
You know, the reality is these things lay outside the jurisdiction of the scientific endeavor. Science will tell you that if you add strychnine to someone's cup of tea, it will kill them. But it is completely mute when the question is, is it right to add strychnine to grandfather's tea so that I can claim his property when he's dead? It's got nothing to say about that. It seems rather obvious when you think about it that there are limits to the scientific endeavor. Even the dictionary defines scientism as an excessive belief in the power of science and its techniques. Nobody's rubbishing science, and this is, not a, this is not a sermon that rubbishes that discipline. It's just an acknowledgement that there is, some people have called it magisteria. There are spheres in which it is effective, beyond which it is not effective and cannot say anything. Science is a really good guide when it comes to matters of how and what, but there are questions that it falters at questions of meaning. It can effectively deal with how, what questions, but has no competence in the face of why questions. Let me illustrate using John Lennox's illustration of Aunt Matilda's cake. He says, Aunt Matilda baked a cake. Now, nutritionists could analyze the calorific content of the cake. Biochemists could inform you about the structures of its proteins and its fats. A chemist could speak about the elements involved in their bonding. A mathematician might be able to come up and offer us an elegant set of equations to describe the behavior of the particles in the cake, and a physicist might lecture us on fundamental particles. Question, has the cake fully been explained? Do we know why Aunt Matilda made the cake in the first place? Now, this isn't intended to insult the disciplines mentioned, simply to say they cannot answer the why question. They don't know why Aunt Matilda made the cake. They are proficient, very proficient, in how and what questions. But the why question lies outside the sphere of their competency. Only Aunt Matilda can tell you why she made the cake. And if she doesn't disclose the reason, no amount of scientific analysis will enlighten you. So to say with Bertrand Russell that because science can't tell you why Aunt Matilda made the cake, then, you know, we can't know is patently false. All we need to do is ask her. Some who are committed to the notion of scientism has, have claimed that since we are unable to understand them, since we are now able to understand much of the mechanics of the universe without God having to be brought into the discussion, they have concluded that we can safely say there's no God who designed it or created it in the first place. We, you know, for those of you who, who've done science, you know, or you know, you've been to lecture, you will have heard the phrase, the God of the gaps. It's always a, a, a statement that is made in a mocking sense of we, we resort to God when we can't explain the gaps, but science is making the gaps smaller and smaller and smaller in our understanding. We are forcing God out and we don't actually need him. The problem is that kind of reasoning involves a logical fallacy. Let me, let me illustrate. Take a Ford motor car, or any motor car if you're a Holden fan, I don't care. Um, it's conceivable that someone from a remote part of the world comes and sees this car for the first time, knowing absolutely nothing about mod modern engineering, might actually conclude that there is a God, brackets Mr. Ford, who made this engine and is making it go. 
What he doesn't understand, he thinks, must be supernatural. As I say, that idea is referred to the God of the gaps. We didn't understand lightning and thunder, so we assumed it was the gods who were angry. But the God of the gaps dimension has shrunk. Over time, this man studies engineering, and he comes to terms with the principles of the internal combustion engine, and ultimately he concludes that there's no Mr. Ford at all. He's not needed. Mr. Ford is not to be found in the gaps in the knowledge of this working engine at all. However, this man is somewhat confused because Mr. Ford is not a mechanism within the engine. He is rather an agent from without that is responsible for its entire existence. And for those of you who study philosophy, you'll know that this man has committed what's called a category mistake. He has confused mechanism and agency. Had there never been a Mr. Ford to design the mechanisms, there would be none for him to understand. And we must not confuse the mechanisms by which the universe works, that's the scientific magisteria, with its cause or its upholder. The existence of a mechanism is not an argument for the non-existent of an agent who designed the mechanism. It's clearly nonsensical to demand that people choose between physical mechanism or personal agency. It is not a question of either or. It is self-evident, I think, that we need both levels of explanation in order to give a complete description of our universe. Scientific explanation of mechanism neither conflicts nor competes with an explanation of agency. They complement each other. That's why science and religion are not opposed to each other. They are dealing with different magisteria. Science can deal with the how questions and the what questions. They have little or no competency when it comes to the why questions. You are reduced to philosophy and religion. And you can't, you know, you, you cannot scientifically verify or work out why Aunt Matilda baked the cake in the first instance, though you may know much about the cake. Scientism is an excessive reliance on, on um, scientific te techniques and knowledge. Please don't go away from this saying, Don, really rubbish science, because I didn't. Okay? I, I, I see no conflict between science and religion, as I said before. In actual fact, science needed religion to actually be launched. My issue with people like Dawkins and Sam Harris and, and um, Bertrand Russell and so on is they claim excessively too much for the scientific endeavor. It cannot explain the issues of why. Only, only religion can. And my uh, thesis, obviously, is that I believe Christianity actually lays the ground for scientific endeavor and answers the questions that scientific magisteria aren't competent in asking. They can deal with the internal mechanisms and how does the engine work, but they can't explain why it exists in the first place. That, that question of why is there something rather than nothing? And some scientists and philosophers come up with ideas that are just patently ridiculous. For example, one particularly well-known scientist said the universe gave birth to itself. If I came up to you and said, I want to introduce you to a man who gave birth to himself, you'd do exactly what you just did. You'd say, how ridiculous. And yet a scientist can say, the universe gave birth to itself, and we go, mm, mm. 
Seriously? Dear Stephen Hawking's, brilliant as he is, or was, passed away this week, of course, we all saw the news. He and Melodinov wrote a book um, just recently, and their conclusion in the book was, since gravity and the, and the, and the um, quantum vacuum exists, the earth can create itself out of nothing. Now, Hawkins was absolutely brilliant as a scientist, but as a philosopher, he wouldn't have got past year one. Because he's just redefined nothing. If gravity and the quantum vacuum exist, the world can create itself from nothing. Excuse me? I mean, you don't have to be a philosophical genius to realize that gravity and quantum vacuum are something. He's just, they just redefined nothing. And if you want to go along with that, that's fine. I mean, their scientific endeavors are incredible. Their philosophy is second rate. We, we, we get so bullied as believers. We find ourselves in classes where people make these kind of statements. If it can't be scientifically proved, it's meaningless. We'll just prove that statement. Nobody, nobody thinks of asking those questions. And so we feel on the back foot all the time as if, you know, to, to believe is to run in the face of evidence. In fact, Dawkins always says that. To, to believe is to run in the face of the evidence that is clear. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not true. That's not even close to being true. Christianity is not a, some kind of ethereal faith in which you believe in things that cannot be historically verified. Christianity is a historical faith that rises and falls on historical truth. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, Paul says, your faith is in vain and you of all people are to be most pitied. So that's why people for hundreds of years have tried to disprove the resurrection because Christianity rises and falls on it. It's historically verifiable. Frank Morrison wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? And the first chapter was called The Book That Refused to Be Written. He started off as a skeptic trying to prove that the resurrection didn't happen. But as he looked at the evidence with an open mind, he found that there was very little to, to explain the way things had happened apart from the resurrection. And people who have gone at that with an open heart and an open mind have invariably found the same things. We are not believing in stuff that is in the face of evidence, but rather because of evidence. Luke starts his gospel and says, listen, I've put all this evidence together and I've written out this account so that you can look at it and you can be convinced as we are that this is true. And he lays it evidentially out. I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> so Dawkins' idea of it runs in the face of evidence is just not true. In fact, you read evidence. It makes me laugh, you know. You are the people who believe in the God of the gaps. No, I don't. I'm the God who, I believe in the God who put the whole thing together. Gaps and all, you know. And then you read Dawkins's book, and there's so much that he cannot explain. And, and I, I went through the book and listed the number of times he says, with a stroke of luck with a little bit of help. Something happened, coincidentally. And I'm thinking, you're the evolutionist of the gaps. <laughs> this isn't a god of the gaps. This is an evolutionist who appeals to something to fill in the gaps. And there's a lot of gaps. It's a, it's a pretty big stroke of luck, friends. Life from non-life. 
whoa, that's a jump. And nobody ever explains it because they can't. They don't know. Oh, yeah, but in a, in a, in a primordial soup with, you know, all the right things. And, you know, where did the flipping primordial soup come from, folks? Why is there something rather than nothing? And they can't answer that question. You do not need to be bullied. You do not need to be cowed. Christianity is not a blind leap in the dark. It's a following the facts. Anthony Flew, who was probably the most famous atheist of the 20th century, a brilliant man, just before he died, wrote a book, I am no longer an atheist. I believe in God. I don't know what God, and I don't know that he ever became a Christian. But he followed the he followed the evidence where it led, he said. And he said, I came to the conclusion that the only proper um, way that I could describe the way the world was put together was intelligent design. This is, this is too much for random chance and time. And he said, I, I, I've become a theist. Well, Richard Dawkins responded by saying, poor old fella, he's lost his marbles. He's in his 80s, you know. So, you know, the interesting thing is, we aren't that different from Galileo's day. You, you challenge the reigning scientific cosmology at your peril. And there are many people who are challenging it, losing their jobs, losing tenure, losing their positions, because you cannot challenge the reigning scientific status quo. Some things never change. But I want to just say to you, you don't have to be bullied. You don't have to be cowed. I'm not knocking science, you know, you might be sitting there saying, well, Don, I believe in evolution. And, you know, I'm, 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 you know, I'm a 21st century postmodern. I believe in evolution. I just simply believe that God put all that together. Well, you're not going to get a fight out of me, okay? I don't believe that, but you're not going to get a fight out of me. You've got to have God in this process. Otherwise, it does not make sense. I'm sorry. And with that, the rant is done. Um... <laughs> I've got one more ism to go, okay? But we've got uh, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday um, intervening, and I'm not quite sure when I'm going to get to it. Um, and, and I want to take my life in my own hands in the next one that I want to deal with. Um, and I'll probably have the car running out the front, uh, and we'll make a dash for it. I don't, you, uh, please don't advertise this wisely. But, but the one ism that just is roaring through our culture like a tsunami at present is the LGBTQI-ism, the activism of the sexual community. And, and I'd like to speak to it from a biblical perspective because I know that many of you, I look around and see most of you, uh, uh, you know, probably under 30, and I, I suspect, I might be wrong, um, but I suspect that many of you have already bought into much of the reigning ideology that, that, um, that, that group have so powerfully influenced our culture and packed our culture with. And I, I want to go on record, and I will do this, and I'm starting to preach this message already, and I've got to stop, but I just want to go on record saying I'm not angry with anybody. You're not going to get God hates homosexuals from me. Okay, because I don't believe that for a minute. I believe every single person is made in the image of God and, and deserves to be treated with love and respect. I don't care what 
their beliefs are in this field. Having said that, I would want to say that I don't always agree with the ideology that goes along with them. I would want to treat them with respect and kindness and love. Unfortunately, they say, love me, love my sexuality. I, I, that, that's the pluralism that I talked about last week. You cannot separate ideas and people. They are lumped together and you must accept the people and the ideas. I'm sorry, but you, that's not true. You didn't, we wouldn't do that with Hitler. We wouldn't do that with Pol Pot. We wouldn't do that with um, Mugabe. We would want to separate the ideas and the people. And you can do it civilly, and you can do it graciously, and you can do it lovingly. And I want to try to do that in a couple of weeks' time. All right? So we'll see how we go. If I don't come back from holiday, you know I chickened out and I've made a run for Argentina. All right? Let's stand, shall we? Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.